We're jumping back into Matthew. And for you guys who have not been here, I would like to give you a brief review uh, because context is important. It's really, it's, it's, it's really important when you go through Scripture to understand contextually who the writer is, why he's writing, what he's writing about, and how he's laying out... This is not just random words put together. This is driven by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, in a, in a way that is given to Matthew's audience. Matthew was known as Levi before his name was changed to Matthew. He was a tax collector. He was a guy who experienced God's grace. Jesus walks up to him sitting at the tax booth, says, hey, follow me. He leaves this life of greed, of betraying his own countrymen to start following Jesus. And he gives us the book of Matthew. He's writing to the Jewish people because he was a Jewish guy, burdened for his people. And he wrote to present Jesus as king. That was his purpose. He wanted to take all the Old Testament prophecies that, that were talked about and lay out why Jesus fulfilled those prophecies and why he was a king. So in chapter 1, he starts off with the genealogy of grace. And he gives this genealogy showing that Jesus had the, the authority, the, the legal line to be the king of Israel. And he goes back and he traces his roots all the way back through Joseph because that's where the legal authority came from, from the man, not from the woman. It came from the father passed down. And, but he, it's interesting in this genealogy, he lists Tamar, he lists Rahab, he lists Bathsheba, he lists um, uh, Ruth, a Moabite. These were four women that you would never put in your family history. There were prostitutes, a woman who pretended to be a prostitute, the one involved with the most scandalous act in Israel history, and then a Moabite who, who was cursed. But the reason Matthew puts them in there is to show that from the very beginning it was about grace. It's about grace. And even Mary, the virgin, it's about grace. He, these five women singing amazing grace. So in chapter 1, that's how he starts off. And then he says in chapter 1 at the end, and Jesus, you will call his name Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. Sins plural, by the way. Not just sin nature, sins. Which implies what? A heart change. A life change. Somebody says they love Jesus. Somebody says Jesus is the Lord of their life. And they don't have a change in their heart. They don't have a change in their life. They're not His people. There's always a heart change when, when you have the spiritual rebirth from Jesus Christ. And, and it starts at the beginning. Matthew's laying that out. We see it in his own life. He went from being greedy to being a guy who laid down his life for this message. And so that's chapter 1. In chapter 2, we see the Magi who came in and, and we see the responses to the birth of the king. We see people that were afraid. Herod was afraid. He wanted to kill him. We see the wise men. They adored him. They came from another country to anoint him king. Then we see uh, the uh, religious leaders were apathetic towards him. And the shepherds were anticipating his arrival. And, and those were the responses. But in that chapter, there are four, maybe three or four uh, prophecies fulfilled that were only a few of the 300 prophecies, plus 300 plus prophecies fulfilled in Jesus' life, going back to the Old Testament. Chapter 3, John the Baptist is on the scene making the path 
ready. He's pointing people to Jesus. He's one of the great examples of how we should minister. Because what did he say? He said, I must decrease and he must increase. So when we go minister for Christ, a lot of times today, that's not the way it is. If you look around in our culture, it's I must increase. I got to get my name out there. I've got to be the one. It's all, we live in such a celebrity culture. John the Baptist, no. When, when Jesus came along, he started pointing people to him. And even his own followers, hey, they're following this guy. And he goes, hey, that's the way it's supposed to be. That's what you want. You want people to follow him. So he was pointing people to Jesus. He was preparing the way. Chapter 4 is the testing where Jesus is tempted out in the desert. And, it, and this testing was to reveal that he was a worthy. He was worthy to be king. He went up against Satan himself. How would you like that? One-on-one -on -one with Satan. Talk about a one-on-one -on -one battle, huh? I mean, ain't no UFC can rival that. <laughs> Jesus goes mano a mano with Satan in the desert and proves that he's worthy to be king. And then he calls his royal council. Matthew, Matthew 4, 19, he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He takes these fishermen and these no-name people that nobody would have ever picked to be the guys that they entrust this great message to. And he calls them to himself and he changes the world with them. In chapter 5, 6, and 7, we see he, he preaches on the Mount of Beatitudes. He takes these guys up and he starts off by saying what? Blessed are the poor in spirit. First character quality of a follower of Jesus Christ is humility. And he goes through and he gives these, these beatitudes. And, and these beatitudes are Christian life, what we are supposed to look like. Blessed are those that mourn. Blessed are those who, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those are things that should describe us. And so often they don't. But he starts off training his guys that way because, you see, the system was messed up. The system that God had put in place was never meant to replace the authentic relationship that God wanted. It was merely to be an outward sign of what was going on on the inside. But the religious leaders of that day twisted it. And so in Matthew 5, he starts saying, you've heard that it was said this, but I say this. And Jesus starts correcting their theology. You've heard that it was said that if you, you, know, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, if you look at a woman in lust, you've already committed adultery. See, he takes it back to the inside. And he does that over and over with a bunch of different things. Then in chapter 6, he deals with her hypocrisy in praying, in giving, in fasting. And he says it's not about those external things, it's about what's on the inside. And in chapter 6 at the end, he says, why do you worry? Look around. Do you see the birds? I feed them. I take care. You see the flowers in the field? Solomon wasn't more glorified than, than they are. And I take care of them. I'll take care of you. Seek first the kingdom of God, he says. And all these things will be taken care of. In chapter 7, he lays out what it's like if you don't follow him. He said, many are going to say, Lord, Lord, but I say, you know, I never knew you. I did this, Lord. I went to church. I gave money to the church. I went on mission trips. And he says, I never knew you. Because it's about the knowledge, the intimate, personal relationship. 
Matthew 8 is a, and 9 are a series of three miracles and in teaching on discipleship. So he's laying this foundation and so he starts doing these miracles to authenticate that he is the one who's from God. So he does these three miracles. He starts by clean, cleansing a leper. And do you know in the temple there was a court of lepers. It was a place where the leper who was cleansed could go. And you know in the history of Israel, no leper had ever gone in there because nobody had ever cleansed a leper like that. Naaman was cleansed, but he wasn't Jewish, was he, John? So no Jewish person had been cleansed other than Miriam who had it temporarily as a matter of just God making a point with her. But Jesus cleanses a leper and what does He tell him? Hey, go. Don't stop and talk to anybody. Go right to the priest. He's telling him to go to that room so they know that the Messiah is here. That's what he's telling him to do. Then he heals this Gentile centurion servant. And he says to this guy, I haven't seen a faith like this in all Israel. What an indictment against those people. And then he heals Peter's mother-in-law. Three unlikely people to be healed. A leper, a Gentile, and a woman in that culture. But he did that. And then he teaches on discipleship because after this, people are going, hey, I want to follow you. And he says... You don't really want to follow me. Birds have nests, foxes have holes, but I have no place to lay my head. What he's saying is you don't really want to follow me. It's going to be tough. Another guy, hey, I'll follow you, but first let me go uh, bury my dad. Well, let the dead bury the dead. You go preach the kingdom. And then a third guy in Luke, we don't see it in Matthew, but in Luke, a third guy says, let me go say goodbye to my family. Hey, if you put your hands on the plow and you turn around, you're not worthy to follow me. Very different message than we hear today in the church. Very different. This is not, I mean, this is Matthew laying out this life. I mean, I'm telling you, I've been going to churches for 56, 57 years now. Ever since I can remember growing up, very rarely have I heard that kind of preaching where people are saying that kind of stuff. But then there's another series of miracles. He goes out in the uh, lake, calms the water. This again in chapter 8. And... Uh, Shows he has control over nature. He's got control over the physical world. So it doesn't matter what the diagnosis is. They told my little girl that I adopted who had a heart condition from the time she could hear and understand language that she was going to die. It's all she heard. It's all she remembered. They told me I was going to die. She told us that over and over. They kept telling me I was going to die. We bring her to Shans down here. She goes to Shans Hospital with nothing we can do. She's got a two-week life expectancy. And for three and a half years, she lived with a two-week life expectancy until she got a new heart. So God's in control of the physical. And then he heals demons, casts them out to show he's got control over the supernatural. And we don't even acknowledge that war a lot of times, that we are in a battle. Satan, you know, Satan is looking to take us down any way he can. And he can influence the physical world, and he can influence temptation to come into our life. And uh, it's a battle. This, this verse, our theme verse was from SWAT, 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. The weapons of our warfare are not of this world. And a lot of times we don't think about that too often until we get in the midst of a battle. Then he healed the 
a paralytic to show that he had power over sin because he told this guy, your sins are forgiven. They had never heard anybody do that. Muhammad couldn't do that. Buddha doesn't do that. Nobody does that except for Jesus because he's God. He has the authority to forgive sins. And he said, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees got all up in arms. They said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. And he says, which is easier to say, get up and walk? Or your sins are forgiven? Well, of course it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because nobody can check that this side of heaven. But he said, so that you know that I have that authority, get up and walk. And the guy got up and walked. And then Matthew tells his little one-sentence testimony about I was sitting at the table, he came by, said, follow me, and I left. And the message of that discipleship is because everybody got in an uproar that he called this Levi, you know, a guy named Levi, a tax collector, to follow him. And then he had a party and he was with all the sinners. And he goes, you guys are missing it. I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the sick. And then the last series of miracles, he heals this woman who had an issue of blood in chapter 9. Jairus' daughter, a synagogue leader. And then he healed a mute and uh, some blind man at the end of that after he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead to show that he had power over death. And, they, and then he sends his disciples out in chapter 10. Chapter 10 is about discipleship. It is him calling his 12 and saying, you go out, be focused. Don't go anywhere. Don't go to the Gentiles, to the Samaritans. Go to the lost sheep of Israel. Why? Because he wanted them to be focused on the people that would receive this message at that time. And so he sent them out there. He says, you're going to be persecuted, but don't fear. Don't worry about it. In fact, you're going to be, don't worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will tell you what to say. You'll be brought before governors. You'll be brought before kings. But that didn't happen to later, but he's kind of laying out for them what life is going to be like when you represent Jesus Christ. It's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. And he says, but if you're ashamed of me here on earth, when you get to heaven, I'm going to be ashamed of you. And I'm going to say, I don't know you. Because when the Spirit is inside of you, you can't say that. You can't do that. It's only when it's an external thing can you begin to say, no, I'm not. Okay, I'll follow to a point, but I'm not going there. And that's what chapter 10 was about. Well, chapter 11 was John the Baptist is in prison languishing. He's going, wait a minute. I thought he was the one that was going to restore everything. I thought he was the one that's going to make everything right. Why am I in prison? Herod seems to be doing great. And I'm languishing here in prison. He's probably going to kill me. He's, he's having these questions. And what we saw in chapter 11 was, it's okay to work through your doubts. It's okay, to, but what do you do with them? You go to Jesus with them. And that's what we learned from that. You go to Jesus, and that's what he did. And then he pronounced woes on these unrepentant cities, Bethsaida, Chorazin, Capernaum. I've been in all three of those places, and they're rubble now. They're nothing. They were all cursed by God, and that's why they're nothing today. You can go over there and see, walk through them. There is nothing there but rubble today because Jesus cursed them. And He cursed them because they had Jesus right there 90% of the time that He was on the earth. He was in that area. And they rejected Him. There's a lesson there for us. When He keeps bringing truth to us over and over and over, There's this thing called judicial blindness that he goes into in chapter 12. 
that, that you move from you will not believe to you cannot believe. That's a scary place. Chapter 12, his disciples were walking through wheat or cornfields. Both, you know, nobody's really exactly sure, but they were picking grain on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees got all bent out of shape about that. And uh, then Jesus healed a guy on the Sabbath. Jesus went, he picked a fight. He was allowing his disciples to do that. And he said, I'm the one, I'm allowing them to do this. He's God, he can do whatever he wants. They were seeking signs, even though he'd given them all these signs. Because seekers see the signs. Skeptics always seek more signs. And that's the way it is, still to this day. Chapter 13, he goes through this series of parables. And what you see in 13 is he starts teaching in parables. Why? Because it's actually merciful. Because there's different levels of punishment in hell just like there's different levels of reward in heaven. And so the more you know that you reject, the more the punishment's going to be. So he starts teaching in parables. He does the parables of the sower and the soils, the parable of the weeds, of, of the, you know, the pearl of great price, of the net. And then he's rejected at Nazareth, his hometown. They don't want anything to do with him. And then in chapter 14... The last part we covered was about John the Baptist dying. And Jesus goes away from there and he feeds 5,000 people, 5,000 men and their families. It's probably closer to 10 to 15,000 people. And all of a sudden, when he did that, people were like, whoa. I mean, everything else they'd heard about, but they just saw him do something Chick-fil-A couldn't pull off. He fed 5,000 people with just a few loaves and a couple of fish. And, and it happened like that. And they, they were excited. They're going, okay, this is the guy that's going to deliver us. And we know from John chapter 6 that they had a self-centered motive. They, he says, you just are following me because I fed you. you. You just, because I gave you bread, free bread. They just wanted a free meal. And, and so many people today treat Jesus like a genie in a bottle. And they want him, man, when he can do something for them. But boy, don't, he ain't going to be the Lord of my life. I'm not going to be accountable to him. That's too hard. I mean, I'm not one of those Bible thumpers. Whoa, he might want me to go to India or the Philippines or Africa. Or, or he may want me to go down to a part of town I don't want to go in. He may want me to do something I don't want to do. Oh, but I want him to help me when I need something. And that's what their attitude was. And that's... That's what we see. And they were wanting to make him king because of this feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus flat out rejected it because he says, I'm not a political leader. I'm not your military leader. I'm God. And I care about what's on the inside. I care about the spiritual. He could have called all these angels to come and take care of the world anytime he wanted, but he didn't. Because he had a plan unfolding. And guys, the quicker we can understand this, the easier it will be when we read Scripture to understand that things that we think are really, really important sometimes aren't very important. What's really important is I just try to follow Jesus. And you know, I, I, I can't stress out about whether 
God's going to provide for me two weeks from today. I have to just think about, has he provided for me today? And he has. I got enough fat on here to last me a couple of weeks. (laughs) So I could probably do without a few burgers and fries for a while. See, the problem is when, when we have... When we have a lot of blessings, we tend to forget the Lord. Yeah. And we have what we we have this facade of spirituality built around ceremony. Yeah. Going to church, going to Bible studies. And, and, you know, I'm reading through Ezekiel right now in my morning uh, time. Um, which is tough sometimes to read yeah, through, really. just to be honest with you. <laughs> But I was struck in Ezekiel 11, verse 19. God says, And I will give them one heart and a new spirit. I will put within them, and I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh, and I will give them a heart of flesh. The whole book of Ezekiel is he's just talking about how all these people, are they don't get it. They're focused on the wrong things. They live for themselves. And he brings judgment on all these different people. It says the same thing at the end in Ezekiel 36. Jeremiah 24-7 says, I will give them a new heart. The Christian life is about a heart change. Plain and simple. It's not about a lifestyle change before the heart change. It's about a lifestyle change that proceeds from the heart change. And I think a lot of times we try to put the cart before the horse. But, but because it's the heart change that has to take place first. And, and people come in, you know what? You just need to get your life right. Your life right, Kent. You got to clean that up. But you can't clean it up until this is cleaned up. And this ain't cleaned up until Jesus rules there. Amen. If he's not ruling there, it ain't going to be clean. If he's not there, if you don't... And, and I had a guy the other day, I spoke at this uh, church breakfast, and he comes up to me afterwards, and he looked me, he said, man, I've been going to church a long time. But I don't... How do you feel close to God? How, how do you... I, don't, I just don't feel anything. And I said, well, what do you want to feel? I mean, you want some warm fuzzy, like when your wife you know, puts on a negligee, that kind of feeling? Do you want... I mean, I'm serious. We're so tangible in the way we think about things. And I said, do you read your Bible? Yeah, I do, but I just don't feel anything. And I said, you know, a lot of times in the spiritual life, you know, there's times with my dad, if I don't call my dad, and I don't talk to my dad, I'm not going to feel anything really from my dad. You know, but when I talk to my dad every, you know, other day and I call him on the phone or when I see him, when we spend time together, I do feel something. And the problem for a lot of people is they, they want to just jump in. Think about a baby, right? When a baby's born, do you think a baby feels deep emotions for the parent? Andrew, you just had a new baby. When Samuel looks up at you, all he thinks is, I want to eat, or I just pooped my pants, or 
something that I need something. There's not a lot of deep emotional connection there other than the fact that He sees you all the time. And the longer that happens, the more that relationship develops, the closer you build a bond. And that's what's happened in my life. See, for, from the time I was young till about the time I was 27, my spiritual connection with God was very varied until I almost lost my life. And it was at that moment that I realized how fragile life is. And I began to invest in reading and in praying and in engaging with God the Father. And you know what I found over time? Is the more I engaged with Him, the more I felt a connection to Him. It's funny how that works. Imagine getting married and then never talking to your wife except for once a month. You're going to feel connected? Then that's what happens a lot of times. I made the decision. I'm in the kingdom now. I'm, all right, I'm a Christian. And... Oh, you've got to read the Bible. I can't understand it. I tried. You know? You're not going to understand it. Listen, if I handed you a Russian Bible right now and said, okay, read this. You read that thing, you be, I don't, I don't get a clue. That's what it's like when you first become a Christian. You may understand the English words, but the concepts behind the words are just like you trying to read another language. And the only way you can understand it is the Spirit reveals it to you. And He does not reveal more than you need because you become prideful, puffed up. So you're like a little baby. You start off with milk and He starts growing you. But at some point, you got to get off the milk. And you can't, can't just keep getting regurgitated stuff. That's why I tell everybody, don't just listen to what I say. You take the Bible. You go read the passages. So, I mean, that's what this is all about. This whole book is about you connecting with God so that you can connect with others for God in a real way, an authentic way. Now, all that to say... We're going to read this passage and then I'm going to make a couple of comments and we're going to come back next week and we're going to really go through and look at this passage. But I think it's really important to have that background established so that you know that this is just not plucked in here. This is a, What's happening here, guys, this passage is probably one of the more important passages in Matthew's text because it's a dividing line. After this, what you're going to see is Jesus pulling away from the crowds, focusing just on His disciples. And the reason is because He keeps getting rejected by the crowds. And this is pretty much... He's laying out... The reason they killed Jesus is in this passage. The reason He's crucified is in this passage. They crucified Him because He said, your system's messed up. It was never supposed to be that way. And He was a threat to their power. And that's why they killed Him. So, Matthew 15, verse 1, says, The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone 
tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made the word void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophecy of you when he said, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts, their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? I think that's funny. Hey, do you know that you upset them? I mean, I just... I, th- I think Jesus just had to scratch his head so many times with these guys. Are you kidding me, guys? That's the whole point. <laughs> the whole point is to offend them. Because what they're involved in is not what I'm about. You know, and, but they're still, they just don't get it. <laughs> he answered, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. What he's saying, he's saying, listen, you can wash your hands all you want, I think it's even funny that that's what Pilate did. He washed his hands. Like, I'm clean of this. Washing has always symbolized cleanliness, right? The reason God gave them the the commandment to ceremonial wash was not to say that this is what makes you holy, It was to symbolize what should have been going on on the inside of their hearts. The the fact that when when they would wash, see, they had to wash. The reason they had to wash was because they would walk around the marketplace. They would engage with Gentiles who did all manner of things that were uh, defiling, that were, you know, polluting to the human body and the soul. And so he said, We're going to wash because we're saying we're different. We're not like that. But it was symbolic of what was on the inside and what had transpired was the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they were dirty on the inside. And they were washing their hands and saying, hey, you better wash your hands. Do we see this today? Yeah. you got a 450-pound pastor sitting up on stage who can't stop eating telling you you're going to hell because you're smoking a cigarette. I'm serious. Yeah, it's true. 
That's that's what that is. Wash your hands. I'm wearing a suit. You don't wear a suit to church? You don't dress up for God and He goes and eats 15 plates at the Bonanza Buffet. That's as much a sin as anything else. So the Pharisees were were not living out this clean life that they were so wanting everybody else to show the world. It was all about show. It was never about the heart. It wasn't about the heart change. So here's the two principles. We're going to come back and we're going to unpack them next week. That God calls you and I to focus on heart change and our internal spirit. That's what our focus should be, guys. When we think about our relationship with God, our focus should be on heart change and our internal spirit, first of all. Not ceremony and tradition. Should, is it not that those things can provide? Yes, they can provide something, but that's not our focus. Second, our focus should be on His Word. His Word, not man's Word. His Word and our purity. Now, I'm not so naive as to think that I will ever be pure. 100% pure because I live in a body that's stained. He sees me as pure because He sees me through Christ. But my focus should be on His Word washing me, revealing to me how I'm deficient. And when I find out I'm deficient, the way I deal with it is I come back to the cross and I thank Him for the cross. I thank Him for His mercy. And what does that do to me as a person? What? Yeah, absolutely it humbles me. And wait, what's that first? What's the first beatitude he said? Blessed are the what? First thing. First one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why am I poor in spirit? Because I realize. Paul. Oh, woe is me, man. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. You ever feel like that? About 24-7 maybe? So what's the message in all that? Is that it's not the perfection of your life, it's the direction of your life. That's what he's talking about here. The direction is seeking Him to change your heart. You should want heart change. You should want Him to grow your spirit. And when you realize that you don't because you blow it with a co-worker, you blow it with your spouse, or you blow it with your kids, what you do, God, please forgive me. Oh, I'm so sorry. Give me the strength to live the way you want me to live. Thank you for the cross. And then you go in humility and you say to the person you offended, Kate, I'm really sorry. You know what? Dad did not respond the way he should have. Lori, I'm so sorry. Not, well, I would have done it different if you would have just done this. Well, not, it's John's fault. He called me on the phone and I said, that's not the way you deal with it. It's a heart change. God is all about changing your heart to make you more humble so that you're less entitled in your thinking because that's all pride is, is nothing but an entitled attitude. Do you know that not one person in here, I don't care what kind of business you run, how successful you've been, not one person in here, me included, deserves the air we breathe. And when you have that attitude, you can look at other people and you can love them even when they're struggling. 
even when they may not be nice to you. It's hard sometimes, but that's what he wants us to do, to love him and to love others, to know him and to know others. That's what this is about. That's why he has us here. So hopefully you'll walk away today with a little bit of understanding of what we're going to look at next week. And uh, for the guys that are new, um, thank you for for being here. And uh, hopefully you'll be back. <laughs> so um, I prayed, and when I got in my truck, I said, "Lord, I just uh, I I don't I don't even know how to talk to these guys today." I didn't. I just said, "You're going to have to kind of speak to me as you speak to them," and because I'm preaching to myself. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm really preaching to myself as much as I am you guys because I, you know, you don't ever just get there. Mm-hmm. The whole Christian life is this series of ups and downs and cycles and realizing, man, I'm not here. But it's to bring us back to the cross. And and you know and and I, you know, here's the thing: our church in America has so perverted and diluted the gospel in a lot of ways. People only know what the gospel is, so. Real quick, I'm going to remind you why we can be grateful that God created you and I for a dependent relationship on Him. But because of our sinful, selfish attitude and our rebellion against Him, that relationship was broken. And so we feel this void in our life. But not only that, we earn death. We earn eternal punishment from Him because we're rebellious. What He did for us, and we kind of thumb our nose up to it, and say, you know what, I don't really want you, God, in my life. And we don't stick our hand out like this, but in our hearts we do. We say, I'm going to live my life, I'm going to be in control, and by that, we're rebellious toward God and His plan. We don't seek Him, even though He's given everything for us. But in His mercy, He sent His Son Jesus 2,000 years ago, who lived a perfect life. He healed the sick, raised the dead, and said, I'm going to die on that cross, and three days later... I'm going to rise from the grave to prove that I am God, I have power over death, and I have power over sin, and I will be your Lord. I will be your Savior. But you need to repent. You need to turn from trusting in yourself and anything else in life that you think will give you hope or righteousness and turn to me. And the Bible says that the moment you do that, you don't have to have this long prayer. You don't have to have this big theological thing worked out. All you need to do is like the thief on the cross, say, will you remember me, Jesus? I want to be with you. I just want to be with you. And the Bible says if that's the desire of your heart, that God's Spirit will come in like He told Nicodemus and will give you this new spirit that will grow. You're not going to start off like a Charles Spurgeon who was one of the greatest preachers of all time. You start off like a baby and you grow on the milk of the Word. And you learn and you grow. And just like a child who takes a few steps and falls you get back up and and you have people around you that help you and he wants to do that and if that's never really been true in your life i pray that before this day's over that you will give him that opportunity to give you that new life because it's the best thing that's ever happened to me bar none better than being a pilot in the marine corps better than being an fbi agent better than anything the best thing has ever happened and I pray it for each one of you Uh, let's pray Father thank you for who you are thank you for your word thank you for the hope that you give us 
I pray for every guy in here. Lord, that if they don't know You, that right now, this day, at this moment, they would stop pushing You away and they would say, okay, Lord, I give up. I'm Yours. Come and give me the new heart that that we spoke about this morning. Holy Spirit, come into their hearts right now. Change them. For those, Lord, that are Yours, but they've been distracted, discouraged, they've been beat down, I pray that You would give them a new vision for the heart that You've given them. And Lord, they would uh, just uh, walk with a fresh step as they get back into Your Word and they trust You. And they start conversing with You again and listening to You through Your Word. Thank You so much for all that You do. You're an awesome God. We love You. And may all we do glorify You today in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.